Well, if you would, again, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Today we're going to be uh, reading verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the the word of our Lord will remain forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We now pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. Be with this your servant. We pray, God, that uh, the gospel is clear. We pray that the understanding of what you are saying to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is clear to us, that it's explained and applied, we pray, God, that we are blessed by your word today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is what we might call a lag indicator of an inward reality. It is the work which indicates the reality of the faith which we have. It is what James speaks of when he says that we are justified by our works. The fruit of our lives, the works of righteousness, are those things which vindicate our saving faith in Jesus Christ. They point to the genuineness of our faith. They point to our being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when a person is filled with the Spirit, they will produce fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness... Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is because the indication of saving faith is a faith which works. A faith which walks in the light. A faith which does good. And so on. Jesus said in John chapter 14, in verse 15, He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. When we love the Lord, then we will also delight in His law. When we love the Lord, we will do those things which He has commanded us to do. These truisms are are what we're talking about today. It's what we've really been talking about for the past several weeks. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been saved by grace through faith... 
You have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You have been made a new creature in Christ. You have died with Him. You've been raised up with Him. You've been seated with Him in the heavenly places. This gracious salvation is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. If these things are true, then you will live your life and you will view the world in a particular way, differently than the world. You you will, in desire to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and you will seek to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you love your neighbor, one thing you will do is address them in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And when you love the Lord your God, you will sing a melody in your heart. You will praise the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord for the awesome salvation which is yours in Him. And you will submit to one another in reverence to Christ. In short, your attitude toward God and your attitude toward your fellow man will be radically transformed. If you're a follower of Jesus, then your life's trajectory is much different than it would be if you were outside the kingdom. And so this is what we're talking about. What is it that spirit-filled people do? Those who, in the context are the children of light. And so the children of light, Paul says, are, first of all, to walk in wisdom. See that in verse 15. We saw this also last week, but it's important that we continue to try to put everything within its larger context within uh, this letter to the Ephesians. And Paul is exhorting the church to live their lives in accordance with the fact that they have been given divine wisdom. Christians have divine wisdom because they possess divine truth. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. And so the wise here is synonymous with believers. Your life is to be consistent with your confession of faith. And the wisdom you possess because you've been regenerated, you've been reborn, you've been renewed by Christ... And so we expose the darkness by light. We make the best use of our time. And as we said last week, making the best use of our time is buying up the market. It's taking advantage of the time and the situation you have for the sake of the gospel because there's much evil, there's much darkness in this world. There's much darkness still, even in our own hearts. And so we have this wisdom from the Lord, verse 17... So do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And so there is here a a contrast between the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the world. This is a continuation of the contrast of verse 15. Walk as the wise, not as the unwise. And since you have God's wisdom, then don't act like the fool. That's what he's getting at. To be foolish is to be senseless, to operate without understanding, to have to operate without reason. The word refers to a folly of action. 
doing things without thinking them through. Young men, for example, can be particularly foolish. They can do impulsive things like wrecking their cars while street racing or doing jumps in their brand new trucks like they do in the movies and then wrecking them. This is why car insurance for 16 to 25-year-old single males is the most expensive. Because immature men can be foolish. I know, because I was once a young man. In the scriptures, when this word is used, it refers to one who does not make right use of their understanding, such as the knowledge of the will of the Lord. The one who is foolish here is one who does not see things the way God sees them. He does not comprehend or apply God's revealed will in the world. And God has revealed His will in the world both through general revelation and through special revelation. Both through just looking at creation and through the Word of God itself. Even the natural world tells us something about God's will. The fool does not act in accordance with God's revealed will. God's standards are not made their standards. God's judgments are not made their judgments. That's the fool. And the conduct of the fool is contrary to that which is decreed by God. For, uh, Psalm 14.1 The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds and there is none who does good. The Christian, then, is not to be like those who fail to apply the will of God. Rather, the Christian is to know and apply the will of Christ. The Christian is to live with understanding. This is similar to what Paul said earlier uh, when he said, Walk in the light. Don't walk in the darkness. Walk in the light. Don't live like the fool because you have the wisdom of the Lord. Walk with understanding. Reflect on God's Word. Seek to do the will of Christ. And what is the will of Christ? Well, 1 John 3.23 says, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Walking in wisdom, walking in the light, following after the Lord, all involve involve keeping the commandments of Christ to love our God and to love our neighbor. To live out His Word. And so that's really our first point. Knowing the will of the Lord and doing the will of the Lord. Loving God and loving neighbor. Christian is to use godly wisdom and understand God's will and not live without understanding, not live without discernment. And to illustrate this point, really, Paul contrasts between those who find their joy in spirits, which is to say, getting drunk on alcohol, and those who find their joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, 
For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Getting drunk is the epitome of not understanding properly the will of the Lord. And Paul calls it debauchery. What, what is being described here are those who would carelessly abandon all reason in life and sink into an abyss of reckless living. Drunkenness is associated with unrestrained living, carelessly abandoning yourself. It is the opposite of self-control. And to live this way is to give over to reckless abandon. This is, this is not God's will for us. This is, this is, by the way, how the world lives. Now understand, the issue is not the drinking of alcohol or wine. The scriptures do not place a ban on the consumption of alcohol. We have freedom in Christ to eat and drink as we please. The issue here is intoxication. What what the issue here is a lack of self-control. A giving yourself over to something. Wine and strong drink are a gift from the Lord. They can be useful. Psalm 104 indicates that wine is for gladness of heart. And Paul instructs Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of the stomach. But the excessive use of alcohol holds great danger for the believer. In Proverbs 21, it tells us, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So the Christian can be free to drink and consume strong drink, but not to drink in excess. This is not acting in wisdom. This is acting like a fool. Those who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, have been enabled to exercise self-control. And certainly we all need further sanctification. But if you have the Spirit, the power is there. Our joy, though, should not be found in liquid spirits. That's not where we find our, our true joy. But instead, should be found in the Holy Spirit. Grace saved children of God are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. Now, one thing you'll note, every, every translation of this renders this with the Spirit. You, you can note that if you are using the ESV, New American Standard, King James, New King James, all, all, pretty much all the major translations put with the Spirit. But it seems that a better translation might be filled by the Spirit. Filled by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the instrument of our being filled. Now, I don't want to get too technical on the reasons for that. I actually spent probably way more time studying this than I'm going to actually spend here. But the reason has to do with a a participle in the clause which shows up in the Greek. And then also the larger context of Ephesians. So so thinking back again on Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's prayer for the church... In verse 19, he prayed that the Christians in Ephesus might be filled with all the fullness of God. So to be filled with the fullness of God is to be filled with all that God has to offer. 
love of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the joy that we have in Christ, the, the, the transformation of our lives, be filled with all that God has for us. And so God is the source of all those things. And so here, the source of the Christian's joy and strength is not strong drink. Strong drink is not the instrument of our joy, true joy. The instrument of this is the Holy Spirit. Overindulging, getting drunk, is the, has the opposite effect. It produces outbursts of rioting and debauchery. The Spirit produces an overflow of joy which expresses itself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Thanksgivings before the Lord. And we'll see as well mutual submission. And so believers are to be filled by Christ by the means of the Holy Spirit, with the fullness of God. All that God has to offer, all the blessings that He has for us. This is what Paul had prayed for the people, and what ought to be the case for believers in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, the Apostle Paul here is, by way of contrast, encouraging believers to seek to be filled with the joy which comes from the Holy Spirit. Because they're already Spirit-filled people. They're to be filled with the Spirit, not with the emptiness of excessive drink. And so as we do, as we're filled by the Spirit, and the joy in the Lord will pour forth in song as we address one another. So you see how this works. Like As, as the Lord really fills with a joy, that joy actually comes out, Right? And we address one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. And so, so the joy of the believer in Jesus Christ is given jubilant expression in speech and in singing. Addressing one another has to do with the exchange of thoughts and ideas and feelings. This is, by the way, why we, why we sing in worship. This is why we all participate in singing in worship. Worship is not something that we watch other people do. This is what we participate in as a congregation. And so we're singing to the Lord, but we're also encouraging one another. These ideas, these feelings, these thoughts, these are biblical and theological. We share with one another the hope that's within us. The hope of glory, the hope of Christ, found in Christ. And this hope is expressed not only in speech, but in song and singing and making a melody together in the forms of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so what is being described here is at least in part, although not exclusively, but what is being described is corporate worship. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says almost the identical thing, where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, in Colossians, believers are exhorted to teach and admonish 
It would seem reasonable to assume that the addressing of Ephesians is equivalent to the teaching and admonishing in Colossians. That's what's involved in it. We address one another with teachings, with admonitions, exhortations. If this is true then, then the, the means of the things which we sing should be that which also teaches and encourages. Much theology is sung and ought to be. We ought to be encouraged as we contemplate what God has done for us. As we sing together, we, should, we shouldn't just sing the songs just to sing them. We should sing them with hearts that are learning and being encouraged. Like, wow, this is the truth of what God has done in Christ for me. And all of, all of our singing ought to be to God's glory. This is why, by the way, we sing the kinds of songs that we do in worship. We sing the psalms. We sing hymns and spiritual songs. Now, you might wonder, what do these terms actually mean? Now, there are some who hold, and these are dear brothers in the Lord, but there are some who hold these terms refer exclusively to the Old Testament psalms. So what they're really saying is that God said to sing psalms, psalms, and psalms. And their argument is that these words show up in the psalms, and so they must all be describing the Old Testament psalter. Now, I will admit that that is an overly simplified version of their argument. I don't really have the time to go through all the details of it. It's much more nuanced but there are these brothers, dear brothers and sisters in the faith who say that the only songbook appropriate for the church is the book of Psalms. The problem with this line of argument is that these terms together were not used in the New Testament to, retur- to refer to the Old Testament Psalms. It's not how they were used. In classical Greek, the word psalm was often used to refer to a love song. The term psalmos in its etymology has the meaning of plucking a string. And when it is used of a song, it's a song sung to a stringed instrument. Now this makes sense because many of the introductions in the psalms include musical introductions on a stringed instrument. I suppose we could also say that the psalms are the love songs of God. Now the term hymn refers to a poetic composition whose primary purpose was praise. A hymn then is a song of praise, particularly a song of thanksgiving to God. These songs recount the mighty work of God and express the gratitude and praise of God's people. And finally, the the last one, uh, the word song, this is actually really a generic term. It refers to any kind of lyrical poetry that is sung. And so when it is spiritual songs, Paul is taking this general secular word and indicating poetic songs which are penned by those who are spiritual or better, who possess the Holy Spirit. In other words, a spiritual song is a song which, is, which draws on spiritual and biblical themes and are penned by spirit-filled people. 
And so a Christian song which reflects Christian truth. Does this, now, does this, this necessarily mean a divinely inspired song? It's not necessarily a divinely inspired song. But these spiritual songs, Charles Hodge said, are the songs of, quote, all those who in their ordinary thoughts and feelings are governed by the Holy Spirit, end quote. So these are songs which are written by spirit-fed, uh, spirit-filled people. They're not divinely inspired songs, but they are songs that Christians are writing to encourage other Christians. Songs which have spiritual truth that are true to the Scriptures. And the church should absolutely be singing of the excellencies of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3.16, Paul exhorted the people to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is what we're seeing. The word of Christ dwelling in us, coming out in the form of song and praise. We should sing the words of Christ. We should write them on our hearts through song. The book of Revelation exhorts us to sing a new song. song with Christ at the center of it. And so with, with all of these in mind, it seems unlikely that Paul's command for the church was the singing of exclusively the Old Testament psalms. Now, we should sing them, and we do. But that's not what he's, he's not saying that we have to only sing those. And so it seems, at least in part, what we have here are really categories for Christian worship, for the songs of Christian worship. Songs which draw from the Old Testament, and particularly from the Psalms, the work that God did in the Psalms, and singing of Psalms, the, the love of God towards His people, but also songs which draw from the New Testament, that draw from the words and deeds of Christ, allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, to sing with a melody, songs of praise which give glory to the triune God. So here's, here's really kind of the, the big overarching point here. The mouths of God's people are not to be filled merely with strong wine or drink. They're to be filled with the Word of God, with divine truth. Words which build one another up, encourage one another, remind one another of the joys of the Lord. Words which bring glory to the living and true God. That's what should be on our lips. And that's the point. Our mouths and our hearts should be filled with the songs to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. Which is to say our singing, again, is not just going through the motions. We're not just mouthing empty words or mindlessly doing this. We are proclaiming a song from our hearts before the Lord. Each and every Lord's Day, you and I have the privilege of singing and praising the King of Kings. Your Creator, your God. And our worship is the corporate gathering of God's people of singing and making melody to the Lord with one voice. 
And so the question you ask yourself is, is my praise heartfelt? Our singing should edify one another, give praise and glory and honor, and it should be from the heart. The singing of the church is to the Lord. We're not passive observers, nor should it be half-hearted. Because we've been saved by grace through faith. And we serve an awesome God. The Lord has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into His kingdom. And so our singing and our making melody is to the Lord recalling the mighty deeds that He has done for us. And our attitude then ought to be one of heartfelt thanksgiving. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything. That is, that we should be grateful, give grateful acknowledgement of all of the benefits that we've received. You consider, well, as we've studied through Ephesians, you really at first half of Ephesians, Paul lays out, here's the benefits that you have as a Christian. That's what we're praising God for, right? All of the, the wondrous things that God has done in Christ for us. We have to give grateful acknowledgement of those things. We are to give thanks at all times. Because of all that has come from the Lord. And here's the thing too. We can't really ever run out of things to be grateful for, can we? And we give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We just say we are to give thanks in the name of and by the authority of Christ. Thanksgiving, heart, uh, gratefulness. These things are uh, the, the heart posture of the believer in Christ. And when we sing, when we sing praises to the Lord, we sing with thanksgiving. Giving thanks always for everything to God. Every blessing we have, the air that we breathe, the earth which we stand on, the salvation that we have through the triune God. Because you and I are totally, in and of ourselves, unworthy of these great and manifold blessings. We didn't earn any of it. We don't deserve any of it. And yet these are God's works of grace toward us. So giving thanks ought to be the natural attitude of the transformed Christian. It's certainly proper and good to give thanks for the blessings we've received. Thanksgiving is regularly encouraged among God's people in the scriptures, uh, particularly in prayer. In Colossians 4.2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or 1 Timothy 2.1, where it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And so singing and making melody in our hearts before the Lord, our, our heartfelt praise before God ought to include thanksgiving. And presumably the singing of songs of thanksgiving may also recount the mighty deeds of God in His Word. So that's what we're singing. We're singing God's Word. We're singing God's promises. We're singing with thanksgiving for all that God has done for us in Christ. And we do so with the authority of the Son of God, who is our Savior and our Redeemer. 
This is what spirit-filled people do. They praise and honor God with songs of thanksgiving. And then look at verse 21 real quick. It says, And they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, verse 21 actually marks a transition. And I wanted to look at it some today, but we'll see more in a couple weeks um, uh, more about this, this transitions to the next section. But suffice to say for now that those who are in Christ, those who are walking in light as Spirit-filled people, those who have been transformed and renewed by the Spirit... They will encourage one another with songs of praise drawn from God's Word and they will submit to one another within the proper context of authority. You see, submission is what Christians do. It's also what we don't really like to do. But here's the thing. All of us are submitting to someone somewhere. All of us are submitting to someone, somewhere. To elders, the elders of the church, the governing authorities, to employers. Paul will go on to give examples of some of the various levels of authority and submission in the next section. Wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. There may be other ways that we may be subject to one another. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, from questions 124 to 132, deal with the issues of relationships of superiors, inferiors, and equals. And there are a variety of contexts in which we find ourselves in any, any of these different categories of relationships. Sometimes even in one relationship. In some cases, we will hold a position of authority, and in another, we will be under authority, and sometimes we're equals. For instance, by the nature of the office that I hold as a minister of the gospel, I have an authority in the church as an elder. But some of you, some of you are older than me. And so in that sense, you're an elder. There's a sense in which you're my superior. And all of us hold the office of general believer... And thus we're actually equals as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so for some of you, as we relate to one another, we relate to each other in these varying levels of authority and submission. The Westminster Larger Catechism 131 states, The duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other in giving honor, to go one before another, to rejoice in others' gifts and advancements as their own. And so over and over again, our our Lord emphasized this thought as well. This idea of, of mutual submission isn't like, we're not necessarily talking about only authority. Like, you know, I have power over you. But also the mutuality of believers. Of rejoicing with one another. Of regarding one another with dignity and worth. Of giving honor to one another. Disciples of Jesus Christ ought to be willing to at least uh, practice what we see in Matthew 18. 1 and 4, where, it's, where he talks, where Jesus taught his disciples to wash the other disciples' feet. 
Now, we're not saying that you need to set up a, a, a basin to start washing each other's feet. That would be kind of missing the point. Although, if that's what you want to do, I suppose you can. But more of the idea is you're honoring one another at your own expense. At the expense of your own honor and place. That's the idea. That's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul in Romans 12.10 taught to, to, be, to the followers of Jesus to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. And in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, he then taught, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Again, this is mutual submission one to another. And then Peter reminds his readers in 1 Peter 4 that they are to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So again, serving one another with the gifts that we've been giving. Loving, serving, submitting, honoring, not looking out for myself, looking out for the needs of others. These are just some of the, of, of the ways that the Father of Jesus may subject, subject himself or herself to others. And to put it perhaps more simply, the follower of Jesus Christ is to die to themselves, to their own needs, their own desires. They're to serve others. Because when we serve one another, we're doing it for Christ. We submit in the Lord. We serve one another out of reverence for Christ. We serve one another because we love Jesus. He is the object of our affections. And so we love one another. We love one another even when one another is not very lovable. When our affections are for Christ, when we look on Him as the loveliest and the most to be desired, when, our, when we prize our Lord over all else in the world, including ourselves, when we, then we will be overjoyed to serve one another. It will be counted as a privilege to do so. When believers in Jesus Christ are united as they are in Christ and the blessings of true Christian Christian fellowship is promoted and God in Christ is given all glory. Well, we started by asking the question, really it's the title of the message, what is it that Spirit-filled people do? Well, they walk in wisdom with understanding. They're filled by the Spirit which produces spiritual fruit. They're not just filled with wine. They speak, they seek to speak the truth, singing and making melody to the Lord, giving thanks for all the Lord has done. And in the end, Christians are grateful, or ought to be grateful people. After all, through no power of our own have we been saved and been given this grace. We've been given this great gift. We've been given the gift of eternal life in Christ. We've been transformed into new creatures. We've been adopted as sons. The, the filthy garment of sin has been renewed and we've been uh, removed and we've been given a new garment. The righteousness of Christ. 
And we have in us the Holy Spirit. And all of this has been accomplished by God for us without us having earned it in any way. And because of this, you and I ought to be thankful. In fact, thankfulness is the proper heart response of the believer. Each moment, every day, should be lived out with praise in our heart before the Lord. Our mouths have to be filled with encouraging words of praise to God because of how lovely Christ is to us. So you love the Lord, your God, above all else. Is your joy and your rest found in Christ? Or are you chasing after the things of this world? Paul says, walk in wisdom, not like the unwise. To walk in the light, not in the darkness. Where is your joy and rest found? My encouragement is that you would find your rest in Christ. And that we would be a people who give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Father, I, I would imagine that all of us have mixed emotions and feelings even as we study this passage because in, in the one sense we know we know the great gift that we have in Christ we know the great benefits we have through him we, we're grateful for the Holy Spirit in us we, we know that we, we want to give uh, encourage one another with songs psalms, hymns and spiritual songs we, we want to sing a melody in our heart before the Lord we want to encourage one another we want to serve one another and yet we also see in ourselves a heart which fails to do those things miserably help us O oh God may we be filled by your spirit with all of the benefits and goodness that you have for us Help us, O God, to put to death sin which remains in us. Help us to not be self-focused, seeking my own needs, but that that the affection of my heart would be Christ. And Father, this prayer is our prayer every single day. We pray that you would continue to be working in us, shaping, molding, transforming us after the image of Christ. And that we can live before you to your glory. We thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.